Okay, well, let's open up in prayer, and we're going to take a look at another one of our commands of Christ this morning. Father, we thank you for this, uh, this morning. Thank you, Father, for the chance to come together with men. And more than anything, thank you for the opportunity to come into your presence and to uh, learn from you through your word and through the commands of your Son. Father, I just pray that we would come with open hearts, open minds, and a willingness to listen and obey what you tell us, uh, that it might change our lives. I thank you for these men. I thank you for the changes I see taking place in their lives, for their willingness to come early in the morning to uh, spend time in the Word, uh, when there's a lot of other things they could be doing. Lord, we just pray that you would take this time and use it to bring glory and honor to yourself, but also to bring uh, life change to our lives. Thank you, Father, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you've got your Bibles, uh, open up to Matthew chapter 23. And we're going to, again, look at uh, another one of Christ's commands. If you remember last week, we, we looked at uh, the command to walk through the narrow gate um, and walk the narrow way. And what that means to us as believers, to go through the narrow gate is the gate is Jesus Christ. It's referring to salvation. It's, there's only one way. It's a narrow way. It's a narrow gate. Uh, only one can go through at a time. You can't take a lot of stuff with you. But then once you get through the gate, we're to walk the narrow way. It's somewhat restrictive in the sense that it's not a broad way. It's not the way everybody goes. It's not the popular way. But if we're going to be disciples of Christ, which is really what we're talking about, it's what we've been talking about since we did the series on discipleship, we have to be willing to walk that narrow way, the way that Christ blazed. And really that way is the way of Christ. It's Christ himself. It's to walk as he walked, to do as he did. Uh, this command this morning is really kind of an extension of the narrow way. And it's uh, how we take the narrow way even further, uh, take it even deeper in our lives. Because if we're going to walk the narrow way, that, that way that Christ has commanded us to, um, this next command leads right into that. And we, we find it in Matthew 5, verse 20. And it says, For I say unto you, this is Jesus speaking again. Many of these are coming right out of that Sermon on the Mount. We've looked at, them, at many of them from there. He says, I say unto you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, it's kind of talking about that narrow gate aspect of you want to get into the kingdom? You've got to go through the narrow gate. But now he's, he's saying something to the effect of our righteousness needs to be better than that of the scribes and Pharisees. And we're going to look at what that means. Who are these guys and what does that mean for us? Another command of Christ that's related to it is Luke 16.6 where he says, Watch out and beware the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Watch out, beware, take heed. Don't do what they do. Don't go where they go. Be careful. So if we're going to walk the narrow way, this morning we need to really practice a different kind of righteousness. It's got to be a, an improved righteousness. And it's got to be better than that of the scribes and Pharisees. So what's he, what's he saying? You know, 
is it just, is it out Pharisee the Pharisees? Is that what he's saying? You got to be a better Pharisee? No. You know, we all know to be a Pharisee, we don't use that term a lot, but you've, you've probably heard people say, that guy's, God, that guy's real Pharisaical. He's just, you know, he, he, he's a law keeper. He's a, he's a law, he's real legalistic. Maybe, maybe only Southern Baptists say that. Um, but to be Pharisaical is, is just to be tied up with the law, nitpicking, you know, um, I remember my, my mom is not pharisaical, but my mom was real big on rules. And uh, very, she grew up in Mississippi, and then my dad yanked her, and we moved to New York when I was four. So my mom, you know, hardcore Mississippian, had to live and exist in New York, and she just did not fit in. She never fit in. She was, she stuck out like a sore thumb, but she really struggled with, the behavior of the people in New York. People in New York are rude. I mean, it's just no ifs, ands, and buts about it. They're rude. And, and um, I was rude because from four years old till I graduated from high school, that's what I became. I was a New Yorker. And my mom really struggled with the behavior of the people around her. You know, they weren't refined. They weren't genteel. They were New Yorkers. And so, you know, we'd go to the grocery store, and my, I'll never forget this. I was just a little kid. We'd go to the grocery store, and my mom had this real heavy southern Mississippi accent, and we'd, we'd, people just almost laughed at her when she talked. It was almost like a cartoon voice. And so here we are in New York. We go to the grocery store, and I'm walking along with my mom, and I wander off, and I come back in a few minutes, and my mom is literally in tears in the grocery store. And I'm like, Mom, Mom, what? What happened? She goes, that man just offended me. I said, who? And she points to the guy behind the meat counter. I said, what did he say? And she said, well, I I walked up and I wanted, I asked him for a a hen. And the guy, you know, said, the hams are over here. She goes, no, I I want a a hen. He goes, ma'am, I just told you, the hams are over here. She goes, and she, she, I want a hen, a frying hen. And she goes, Man, I don't know what you're going to do with it, but, you know, you can fry it, you can bake it. I don't care, but they're right over here. The hams are right here. <laughs> and they had this exchange, and she, she just burst into tears because she could not get him to understand, and she thought he was rude. So I went up, and I, I you know, I, I couldn't have been more than seven. I said, you know, where are your chickens? And he goes, oh, your chicken. The chicken's over. Why did she say that? She wanted chicken is over here. And my mom's in tears. But my mom... I remember as a kid, she was somewhat pharisaical in the, in, to the degree that she would tell me, most of my friends were lost. They, they, I didn't go to school with any, any kids who went to my church. They were, well, most were lost. They were all lost. Uh, and she would say things like, well, we don't do those kinds of things. We don't hang around those kinds of people. We don't talk like that. We don't, well, they drink, you know. And, you know, Southern Baptist, you just don't, I mean, that's anathema. You don't, you don't hang around with those kind of people. And this came to a head one day when I'm dri- we're driving home from church, and my mom would just see people, and she would kind of judge people. She'd just look at them, and she'd say, well, that person is X. So we're driving home from church one day, and our neighborhood, nobody had fences. And so we'd go around the corner, and next door to us lived a family, and they were not churched. Uh, they didn't. 
know anything about the Lord. And their son was probably 16 years old, 17 years old, and he's laying in the backyard in shorts without a shirt, just taking in the sun. So here we are driving in the car and after church, and my mom's driving, my sister and I are in the car, and she, she looks in this backyard, and she sees this guy, and she says, I bet he's on drugs. <laughs> and I, I just remember thinking, Mom, what, why did you... What? He's laying in the sun. She goes, he doesn't have a shirt on. And, and my sister and I both were dumbfounded. We said, so he's on drugs? She goes, well, I just, you know, he just, he doesn't have a job. I said, he's 16. I mean, he, how do you know he doesn't have a job? But she, she was very big on behavior, outward things. And that's what it means to be pharisaical. And, and that's where we want to take this. Because Jesus says, my righteousness needs to be better than that of these guys. It needs to be improved. It needs to, be, it needs to surpass it. And it goes on to say in this verse in chapter 5 of Matthew, it says, if we don't do that, if it doesn't surpass theirs, it'll keep us out of the kingdom. That's pretty scary stuff. Now, it's especially scary if you're a Jew living in Jesus' day and you're hearing this for the first time because of what they thought of Pharisees. Now, we're intelligent, postmodern Christians, and we know what to think of Pharisees. But the Jewish people of Jesus' day had a different perspective of Pharisees. So when he says this, it's pretty mind-boggling. He says to watch out and beware their leaven. Beware of their teaching. Beware of what they say. Watch out. And again, you've got to get in the, ma- the minds of the people he's talking to, and they're thinking, what do you mean watch out? What do you mean I've got to be better than them? That's impossible. How am I going to pull that off? So who, who were the scribes? He, said, he talks about three different groups in this passage. He's going to talk about scribes, he's going to talk about Pharisees, and he talks about Sadducees. And real briefly, I just want to go over who these guys were. Because if we're going to surpass them in their righteousness it would make sense that we know what, what they believed, who they were, and what kind of righteousness they practiced. Well, the Pharisees, real quickly, were a Jewish sect. Okay, They represented the middle class for the most part. Most of them were kind of lower middle class, upper middle class, but they were kind of in the middle. They were the regular guys. But they were a Jewish religious sect. The word is from a Greek word, pharisaios, and it's taken from the Aramaic, which means separated ones. So they were separated. Now, there's a lot of debate over what this means, what were they separated from. Uh, It's interesting that at least some commentators believe that the Pharisees saw this separation as a badge of honor. Um, The Jewish people knew because the teachings from God that they were to separate themselves from the rest of the world. They were to live differently. They were not to be like those around them. When they went into the promised land, they were not to intermarry. They were not to take on the gods of the other countries. They did, but they weren't supposed to. They were to be separate. And they had an aversion to pagans. The average Jew didn't hang with pagans. They didn't spend time with them. They didn't spend time with with the uh, um, Samaritans. And so they separated themselves. The Pharisees took it even further, and they separated themselves from the average Jew. In many ways, they looked down on the average Jew. 
we've talked about this in the past, but they would they would look at the average Jew, and, and law keeping is real important. We'll see that in a minute. And the average Jew couldn't keep the law the way they could, and so they felt like the average Jew was keeping Israel back. So they would separate themselves even from the average Jew. They were aloof. So they were the separated ones. It also probably had to do with their view of uncleanness, that they would have nothing to do with anybody who was unclean, which under, makes you understand why they were so upset that Jesus ate, drank, and hung around with who? Sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes, unclean. How in the world could you do this? It also explains why they got so upset when the disciples wouldn't wash their hands before they ate grain. You know, they're walking along the way and they take heads of grain and they're popping it in their mouth and they're like, well, hey, what's up with that? They're not washing their hands. Uncleanness was real important to them. They were real nitpicky guys. They emphasized strict interpretation to the written and the oral laws. Real strict interpretation. Not just the laws God gave it, but oral law, their law, their rules. Hundreds and hundreds of rules that they added to the law that took precedence over God's law. I mean, these guys were the masters. They were the legalists of their day. You know, we all probably know somebody who's a legalist, you know, in the spiritual community. Somebody who's just real black and white, and this is the way it is, and you can't do this, and you can't do that. These guys were the legalists of their day, and they they held it over the people that here's all the rules. And the people found it unbearable. They couldn't live up to it. They couldn't do it. And we're told in the Scriptures that they, they made the law a burden. It wasn't a blessing. It was a burden because they added all these traditions to it. And it was like they would change the rules constantly. Uh, and they would make the rules that they could keep them, but nobody else could. Uh, and it was just... And Jesus attacked them for this because of their legalism and their adherence to the rules, their own rules. Well, how about the Sadducees? Who are they? Real quickly, another prominent religious sect. They happen to be the upper class. Most of the time, the high priest was from this sect. Uh, he was a Sadducee. So they're upper class. They accepted the law but rejected oral tradition. So you can see the Sadducees and Pharisees didn't get along. They both believed in the law, but these guys rejected the oral tradition of the Pharisees. No, it's just the written law. And so didn't get along. There were other things they disagreed on, but there were differences in the two. But you see, the common thing was the law. How about the scribes? These guys were the copiers of Scripture. Okay, They were the lawyers, the teachers of the law. They were, I mean, these guys were meticulous at handwriting scripture, and they would count every letter, they would count every line, they would make sure that everything, and can you imagine if you copied something over and over and over again, you would probably know it pretty well. So these guys knew the scriptures intellectually better than anybody else because they copied it, they read it, they amended it, they explained it, they protected it, they were They had a love affair with the law, the first five books of the Bible, a love affair. So you see the common bond between these three groups. And the reason Jesus lists them all is that it's all about the law, the written law, the oral law, keeping the law, explaining the law, loving the law. And so who are they? Let's bring it today. They represent the religious elite of the day. They're they're the experts. They were looked up to by the people You aspired to be a Pharisee. You remember uh, Paul, when he's talking about himself, 
he, he bragged about the fact almost that he was a Pharisee, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was as good as they came. He was on the fast track to the top when it came to being a Pharisee. A young Jewish boy would have aspired to be a Pharisee, a Sadducee, even a, even a scribe. They were revered. They were almost like seminary grads. You know, they just, man, all the wisdom these guys got, four years, five years, however long it takes them to get through, but, man, they got all this, this wisdom that they've garnered from the experts. That's who these guys were. They were the pastor teachers. They were the paid professionals of their day. And the people looked up to them and in a way were probably jealous of them because of their relationship with God and the relationship with the Word of God. So, in this passage, is Jesus telling the Jews of his day and is he telling us that we just got to out-Pharisee the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes? We got to do their brand of righteousness better than they do? Is that, is that what he's saying? No. He's talking about a totally different kind of righteousness, a totally different kind, because they had a problem, and and Jesus hammers them over and over again about their problem. And Jesus had a lot to say. If you go back and read through Matthew, read read through the Gospels, you're going to see that Jesus had multiple things to say about these men and very critical things to say about them. So what? you guys help me out. What did he call them? Just yell them out. Hypocrites, vipers, blind fools, do what? Sons of hell. That's that's a good one. I use that one a lot. Yeah. Yeah. What else? Brood of vipers, hypocrites, whitewashed tombs. That's another popular one. You whitewashed tomb. When's the last time you called somebody that? <laughs> today you are going to use it today aren't you yeah yeah you got somebody in mind yeah hopefully they're not at your table okay so so can you imagine you know here's jesus the uh carpenter of galilee and he's he's speaking to the religious elite of his day and this is the stuff he's calling them it'd be like you know me showing up at dallas seminary you know, during the middle of chapel and just standing up in front of them and, and saying some of the same things. Not that they deserve it, but can you imagine the reaction of the, the students and the administrators and those in authority? He calls them hypocrites, blind guys, blind fools. He calls them whitewashed tombs. Um, that one doesn't resonate with us very much. I mean, we just don't, gosh, can't you come up with something better than that, Jesus? But in his day, that was a slam because they knew what it meant and it had meaning to them that it doesn't have to us. And it was the idea of the decay. They had a, they had a habit or a, um, they would go out to tombs and they would whitewash the outside of the tombs and make them look pretty, kind of like us going out to the graveyard and putting flowers up. But Jesus is going to say later that what's inside that tomb? You can paint it all you want, but inside is what? Decay, dead men's bones. It's the inside. So he calls them whitewashed tombs. He calls them dirty cups. This is an inference. He says, why don't you clean the inside of the cup? You worry about the outside. You clean the outside of the cup, the outside of the plate. Why don't you clean the inside? So the inference is you're dirty. You're like a dirty cup. 
You can imagine if you're a Pharisee and you're all about separateness and uncleanness, you don't drink out of dirty cups. You just don't do it. Um, it, Again, it was a slam to them. doesn't sound like much to us. He calls them children of Satan, sons of hell. Um, He says you're of your father, the devil. He's a liar, you're a liar. He's a murderer, you're a murderer. So he infers that they're murderers. He calls them liars. He calls them serpents. He calls them a brood of vipers, poisonous snakes that have no real purpose other than to bring damage and bring harm. So, again, Jesus is making lots of friends here, um, lots of friends with the religious leadership, and you can understand why they wanted to get rid of him, why they, they hated Jesus to the core of their being. But let's, let's look at what is Jesus saying. What's his point? Why does he spend almost all of chapter 23 is an attack on the Pharisees? So what's he saying? Number one is their righteousness was hypocritical. He calls them hypocrite, 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 hypocrite. He says it over and over and over again. And they knew exactly what it meant. They're play actors. It's a Greek term. It's, it's the term used of an actor, somebody who puts on a mask and appears as something he's really not. You're a hypocrite. They say one thing and they do another. You ever done that? Say one thing, do another. Act one way, but really that's not the way you live. They don't live what they teach. You know, one of my biggest fears with with my kids is me being a hypocrite in front of my kids. Me saying, hey kids, don't do that, but me doing it. And, And my kids have called me on the carpet on that. I remember my, my oldest son, when he was younger, you know, we, we were very protective of what kind of movies they went to, and we don't watch those kind of movies, and we don't go to those I don't want you seeing that. I don't, if you're over at a friend's house, you call us before you watch a movie at his house, and, you know, we were religious about it. And I remember one day, you know, my wife and I had gone to a movie, we came home, and my son heard us talking about it, and he goes, Dad, why, why do you go see those movies? And it, what do you think my answer was? I'm an adult. <laughs> Because I'm an adult. We can see those kind of movies. Yeah, I'm previewing it for when you get older, yeah. And his little mind is going, but but why is it okay for you and it's not okay for me? And I remember that conversation vividly because I couldn't come up with a real good answer that even I believed. But I tried to. I tried to convince him that, you know, well, this, you know, I'm I'm more mature, I'm older, you know, I can. And finally I just said, you know, Taylor, there really is no good reason. There really is no good reason. Because my son was saying, how come you tell me one thing and you go do another? Is there some point in my life where it's okay to do that when it's not okay now? Now, yeah, there are certain things. I don't let my 12-year-old drive my car. But there are other things that I think we just need to say it's not good for me to do. It's not right for him. It's probably not right for me. Set the example. So they're hypocritical. Verse 3, they say... Jesus says, do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and don't do them. You know, don't, don't do it according to their deeds. They say things and don't do them. In other words, they look good. They, they seem to do the right things. They seem to tithe. They seem to. But Jesus is going to attack the very fact that they tithe, but they don't tithe the right way. They don't tithe the way God prescribed. Don't do their deeds because they don't always 
They say things and they don't do them. They don't keep their word. They're hypocritical. How about their righteousness was self-centered? You know, Jesus has a lot to say about them. It's all about them. It's all about them and not God. So they're self-centered. The Pharisees were highly self-centered. Jesus says in verse 6, They love the places of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues. They love to get noticed. You know, there's a, the story of the, the Pharisee who is, um, you know, praying and, you know, has his hands raised and he's he's... He wants attention for himself. He wants people to notice. Jesus talks about them you know, praying in the middle of the street. It's all about attention. It's all about places of honor. They're self-centered. And sometimes I think you and I can struggle with the same thing. That pharisaical, self-centered, it's all about me. It's all about being noticed. It's all about getting recognition. How about their righteousness was deceptive? It was kind of a... A sham, not kind of a sham, it was a sham. Because their way appeared to be right. The people looked at them and thought, man, that's the way to do it. These guys have it nailed down. I can't pull it off, but I wish I could. I wish I could be like a Pharisee. Because they looked like they were doing it the right way, but their way was impossible. To the people, at least, it was impossible. So they looked at these guys and went, I can't, I can't keep all these rules. And you know what the Pharisees were think, thinking? Yeah, you're right, you can't. And they stacked the deck to where only they could keep the rules because they controlled the rules. You know, I, I don't like to play games. I hate games. Um, I hate board games. I hate card games. I hate games. I like sports, but I hate games. And one of the things, you know, my kids love games. And I always felt like my kids were changing the rules. You ever felt like that? You're playing a game and it's just like, well, how can I... How come I can't play that card? You can't play that card, Dad. You just play the card. Well, yeah, but that's it's different. And I, I'm so bad at games that I can't keep up with the rules, and so I always felt like they were changing the rules on me. That's exactly what the Jewish people felt like, is the rules were constantly changing. One day you could do this, one day you couldn't. And they stacked the deck and made it impossible. Look at what Jesus says in verse 13. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of God from people... For you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. What he's saying is you, you've made it so strict that people can't even get in the kingdom. And guess what? You're not going to get in yourself. It's like they're standing at the narrow gate and they're just they're pushing people away. You, no, you can't go in unless you do X, Y, and Z. You, okay, you haven't met that. You can't go in. But guess what? They're not going in either. They're not going in because they're deceptive. They look good, smell good, act good, but they're not going to get in. And I think today in, in, the, in churches all across this city, all across this country, there are people who look good, smell good, say the right things, know a lot of Scripture, carry a Bible, memorize verses, but they only look good. They have the wrong kind of righteousness. It's external. It's not internal. And then their righteousness was external. It's all about the outside. Jesus makes this real painfully clear. It's all for show. It's all about getting noticed. He says in verse 5, they do their deeds to be noticed by men. Now, we all struggle with this. You know, I've told you before, my wife is a behind-the-scenes player. She loves to minister to people behind the scenes. She wants no recognition, and it drives me nuts. You know, honey, come on. Let somebody know. How are they going to thank you? And she's like, I don't want to get thanked. I just want to do it. 
the Pharisees were all about getting thanks, all about getting accolades, all about getting noticed. It was all for show. It was all external. And so they concentrated on keeping clean and looking a certain way and acting a certain way. But behind the scenes, they lived a totally different life. There, there are some, some commentators who really believe that the Pharisees struggled with immorality more than any other group, sexual immorality. Uh, when Jesus called them a, an adulterous generation, he was not just saying you're adulterous in your relationship with God, but you're adulterous. You guys are immoral. These are the religious leaders of the day. It was all for show. And their righteousness was lip service. Just lip service. They were in love with everything but God. And again, there are those who believe they were in love with power. They were in love with uh, possessions, position, prominence, but even sex, money, having stuff. They were in love with those things more than God. Matthew 15, 7 through 8 says, You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy about you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. Now think about that. Think about that in your life today. How many times do you honor God with your lips, but your heart's, you know, 18 blocks away? You know, you you come to church, and guys, I say this because I know I do it. I can come to church, I can sit in service, I can sing the songs, I can say the right things. I can even be asked to come up in front of the congregation and lead in a prayer. And my heart be far away my heart be so distant i'm thinking about anything and everything i I can get up i can pray i can go sit down and immediately start thinking about work start thinking about problems start thinking about money start thinking about you name it my heart is far away and jesus says you're a hypocrite you're a hypocrite your righteousness is nothing more than lip service so what should our righteousness look like what should it look like? We've talked about the Pharisees. Jesus said, unless our righteousness surpasses theirs, we will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So what, what's our righteousness supposed to look like? And this is what I want to end with. You know, this statement, as I said earlier, had to sound impossible to the Jews. You know, they, they looked at that and thought, you, Lord, you're crazy. I can't surpass the Pharisees. I can't out-Pharisee the Pharisees. It, it sounded unachievable. It sounded like something they just couldn't make happen. And it had to almost have a defeating quality to it. But here's, here's the key. Jesus is not demanding better behavior. Remember, we talked about this in discipleship. Jesus is not interested in behavior modification. He's interested in heart transformation. This is not about changing your behavior. He's also not, not talking about improved law-keeping. You've got to be a better law keeper than the Pharisees. Hey, good luck with all that. You couldn't pull that off. I can't pull that off. So it's not about law keeping. It's not about behavior. And it's not about greater obedience. You know, if you're going to keep the law, you've got to obey. You've got to keep all the laws. Uh, and it's, it's not about all that. It's not about what they thought it was about. He's talking about a different breed and a brand of righteousness. It's about a changed heart, a changed heart. You know, his, his issue with the Pharisees was not so much their, their, their law-keeping and their nitpicking and their rules. It was their heart. It was their heart. If you go back to everything he criticized them for, every name he called them, is really an issue of the heart. 
I love what John Stott says. Christian righteousness is greater than the Pharisaic righteousness because it's deeper being a righteousness of the heart. The righteousness which is pleasing to God is an inward righteousness of mind and motive for the Lord looks on the heart. You know, you can't impress God. Nothing you do impresses God. He doesn't go, wow, Ken, that was, man, that was impressive. Man. You know, he, I can, I can, you know, believe it or not, there are people I can impress. My kids, until they get to be about 13. But, you know, I can impress certain people. You can impress certain people, but I can't impress God. I can't fool God because he looks right through my skin, right to my heart. And he knows what's going on. So really three things I want to end with. This righteousness that you and I are supposed to be living is an external righteousness. What do I mean by that? It ain't your righteousness. It's not something you have to manufacture. Gosh, if I could just be more loving, if I could just be more patient, if I could just be more kind, if I could just whip myself into a frenzy and be more giving. This is not something you manufacture. Why? Because it's not about trying harder. It's, it's, it's a righteousness, the scriptures tell us, we've received. It's not mine. That's why it's not about rules. It's not about achieving. It's not about doing. It's about becoming. 1 Corinthians, Paul says, But by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, by his doing, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that Just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Don't boast in how great you are. Don't boast in how much scripture you know. Don't boast in how great a teacher you might be. or Whatever thing you have that kind of sets you apart from everybody else spiritually, don't boast in yourself. Boast in the fact that it's all because of God that you're here today. Not only that he made you, but he chose you. He saved you. He called you. He redeemed you. He is sanctifying you. It's all about him. Your righteousness is not your own. Second Corinthians, he says, He made him who knew no sin, Jesus Christ, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's not your righteousness. It's not about you. It's about him. And again, Paul says in Philippians, Not having a righteousness of my own. Man, if anybody had righteousness, it was Paul. Great Pharisee, great rule keeper. But he says, I don't have a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. It's not our righteousness. But it's not only an external righteousness, it's an internal righteousness. It's not my righteousness, but guess what? It has to change me from the inside out. That's why rules and behavior modification, all the stuff we do, may fool a lot of people, but if it doesn't get to the heart, if it doesn't get to the core, it's not true righteousness. It's not true life change. See, the Pharisees believe the opposite. It's all about the externals. And that's why, guys, if, if, if you are claiming to be a Christian and you've known the Lord for 10, 15, 20 years and you are not seeing change in your life, if you're not seeing fruit take place in your life, I'm not asking you to question your salvation, but at least step back and say, What is going on? Because life change should be taking place in our lives. It's internal. Matthew, you clean the outside of the cups, Jesus says, and the dish, but inside you're full of robbery and self-indulgence. You are so worried about looking good 
but you could care less about the content. Guys, think about the content. The next time you come to church, Sunday morning, think about the content before you sit down to worship, before you start singing those songs, before you start praying, before you do anything else. Think about your heart. Think about the inside. Jesus says you're like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside you're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Think about the inside. The Lord looks through your clothes, he looks through your skin, and he looks at your heart, and he knows the condition. It's not my righteousness, it's his. It's got to change me from the inside out. I love the message, how they translate Matthew 23, 27. You're hopeless, you religion scholars and Pharisees, frauds. You're like manicured grave plots, grass clipped and the flowers bright, but six feet down it's all rotting bones and worm-eaten flesh. Man, how graphic is that? But it's so true. What's on the inside? It's an external righteousness because it comes from Christ, but it's internal because it changes us from within. See, Jesus cares about behavior, but it not in and of itself. It's not by itself. If all you do is change your behavior, we know people like that. You can, you can do certain things, and if it doesn't last, it's because it's not real. It's not from within. John Piper, in his book, what Jesus demands from the world says this, the only external behavior that counts with Jesus is what grows out of a transformed heart. Think about that. The only behavior Jesus cares about is what comes from a transformed heart. He is not impressed. with If, I, if today I go out and I just you know, try real hard, he's not impressed because he looks at my heart and he says, your heart's not being transformed. You're just trying to go through the motions. That's what the Pharisees were guilty of. So it's external, it has to become internal, but it's also impossible, guys. Just like all these commands, they're somewhat impossible. You remember the story of the rich young ruler. He comes to Jesus and he says, hey, how can I get into the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says, keep these laws. And he says, hey, I've kept them all. What else? And Jesus says, give away all that you have, give it to the poor, and then follow me. And he says, can't do it. And he walks away. The scriptures say he grieved. And the disciples, of course, turn around and go, hey, hey, if he can't get into heaven, because rich people all get into heaven because they're blessed of God. If he can't get into heaven, then who gets into heaven? They're blown away. He walks away sad. The disciples are confused. Then who can be saved? And Jesus' response is, with people it's impossible, but with not with God, for all things are possible with God. See, this righteousness that he's demanding of us is impossible. It was impossible then, it's impossible now. That's why it has to come from the outside. Left to ourselves, we will treasure everything but Jesus. We'll treasure popularity, prominence, position, power, things. It's got to change our heart to where he becomes our greatest treasure. Close with this. The righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees' righteousness is the new heart that trusts Jesus and treasures him above money, praise, sex, and everything else in the world. Treasuring what is infinitely valuable is in one sense the easiest thing in the world, like being commanded to enjoy your favorite food. But when our hearts do not treasure Jesus in this way, changing on our own is beyond us. See, guys, if you don't really treasure Jesus, if you really don't want him, if you don't want to spend time with him, you're, you're going to always be doing it on your own because you're going to look to anything and everything else to bring you happiness, to bring you fulfillment, to bring you change, to make you who you think you need to be. 
You've got to want him more than anything else in the world. Being a follower of Jesus Christ is all about Jesus Christ. That's why you go through the narrow gate and you walk the narrow way and you do it because of him, because of him. It's all about a changed heart. It's all about what Jesus wants to do in you and in me. So how do we pull it off? It's not something we do. Our salvation comes from Christ alone. He's the narrow gate. It's all about him. Our righteousness comes from him. We're not only saved by him, but we're made righteous by him. So what do we do? Paul says in Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life you and I now live in the flesh, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. It's all about him. It's all about living your life through him. So I'll leave you with this thought. Your degree of righteousness is dependent on the quality of your relationship with Jesus Christ. Your degree of righteousness is dependent on the quality of your relationship with Jesus Christ. You want to be righteous, you want to be holy, you want to live the life you've been called to live, it's directly linked to your relationship with Jesus Christ. You don't want to spend time with him, you're not going to be changed from the inside out. I don't care how many times you walk down the aisle. I don't care how many songs you sing. I don't care how many mission trips you go on. If you are not being changed from the inside out through the power of Jesus Christ, you will not have the righteousness he's talking about. And your righteousness will be that of the Pharisees, the scribes, and the Sadducees. It's all about relationship. Let me close this in prayer. Father, I thank you so much for the fact that my righteousness is not something I have to whip up. It's not something I have to manufacture. It's not about me trying harder. I don't have to live like a Pharisee. I don't have to look good on the outside but be screaming with pain on the inside. Father, with you I can come, and I can come in my weakness. I can come in my inability. I can come in my frustration, and I can say, Father, help me, and you will help me. You've given me Jesus Christ. You've filled me with your Holy Spirit. You have provided the gate. You've provided the way. You've provided everything I need to become the man you've called me to be. And in your eyes, I stand as righteous. So, Father, may we learn to live as righteous. Live as who we are. Not what the world tells us, but as men who are followers of Jesus Christ. May we live lives that walk the narrow way, that reflect a relationship with Jesus Christ. May our relationship with Jesus Christ grow deeper and deeper and deeper every day. And if it does, we're guaranteed that it will change us from the inside out and our righteousness will surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees. It will be the righteousness that you look on and you smile because it reminds you of your son. Father, thank you for these guys. I pray that you would encourage them in their walk, encourage them in their day, help them to be the men you want them to be, the fathers, the husbands, the workers, the, the business owners, whatever they do, whatever walk of life, Father, they, may they be men who bring glory and honor to Jesus Christ. And I pray this in his name. Amen. All right, guys, pick up a lesson on the way out, and we'll see you next week with breakfast.